Welcome to Monarch Perspectives. I'm Steve LeClaire, partner at Monarch Private Capital, focused on affordable housing. And I'm Rick Chukas, also a partner at Monarch, leading our historic division. In this podcast series, we'll talk with industry experts about important topics for tax equity investors, developers, and owners. From affordable housing to renewable energy, we'll explore trends and opportunities in federal and state tax credit programs. We hope to provide you with valuable insights to navigate the world of tax equity and impact investing. Hello and welcome to another edition of Monarch Perspectives. Today, Rick and I are thrilled to be joined by Josh Mandel with Gateway Companies and future voice of the Alabama Crimson Tide. So Josh, uh, welcome and please, uh, you know, if you would introduce yourself uh, and, you know, Gateway Companies is well known to Monarch and presumably much of our audience, but you can give us a little rundown on who you guys are and what you do. We'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Steve, it's great to be here. Appreciate you, Rick, uh, hosting me today. It's a privilege to do this. I've always esteemed to have my own podcast one day. And so uh, seeing what you guys have put together is really cool. And um, it's fun to uh, do this with you. This is a great forum to go ahead and roll out that announcement about Alabama. (laughs) Coach Saban has been very supportive of that. And uh, Coach DeBoer has become a really fast friend. So thank you for that. We're excited about uh, 24 and about Gateway. So Gateway Gateway Development, the Gateway companies have been around for about 40 years now. In the world of, of affordable housing development, that is a lot of history. Uh, our company is based in Alabama. We have a southeastern footprint. Our company was founded by a gentleman named Alan Rapoon. Alan started that company shortly after the affordable housing tax credit, the low-income housing tax credit program was enacted. Uh, with the 1986 Reagan Tax Bill, Reagan Tax Act. And Alan, Alan just steadily built that company from the early 90s to today. And in that time, we grew from a company that did a lot of uh, smaller projects in smaller towns, which we still do today, to larger projects, uh, larger affordable projects, conventional multifamily projects throughout the southeast in small towns, medium and larger metros. Besides uh, construction and architecture, we're a fully integrated uh, multifamily company. Great. Thank you, Josh. That's fully integrated multifamily development company and kind of the the longevity of the company or you know, one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on to talk about both the LightTech program and multifamily development generally. 2023 was a interesting year, if, uh, if not just to come out and call it a challenging year for many of our clients, uh, both on the historic redevelopment and certainly on the multifamily development side. So wanted to bring you on really to talk about not just what's difficult about putting deals together right now, but where you're seeing challenging challenges on existing developments uh, and you know stabilized assets within your portfolio. So with that, we'll dive right in. And when we focus on just new developments, you know, projects that maybe you've put an application into a state agency on, or maybe you've tied up a piece of land, what issues have come up in the last six, 12 months that have changed how Gateway is approaching a new development or a particular challenge in putting a development together. You know, obviously we were all drunk on cheap uh, cheap money and high tax credit pricing for many years, and that may not be the reality anymore, and we're having to adjust to this, this new normal. So how is Gateway approaching that? That is the root of this massive uh, disruption, this massive uh, change that we've experienced in our industry. And I'd say over, call it the past 15 months or so. And so 
I would go back. I would say in, in our team uh, on our development and finance side, we have a really good team that, and we work very closely on all aspects of from the time we uh, identify a market and decide to pursue sites in a given market or part of a market to the time that we um, finance it, develop it, and, and deliver and stabilize. What we noticed going back to probably the fourth quarter of 22 was uh, until that time, we're very proud of our of our history and, and our reputation, but there are many larger companies that, that do what we do, especially in the uh, conventional space. Yet we were still constantly pursued by lenders and investors to put capital work for them. And we could not create the deal flow fast enough to satisfy those and then to support those assets. And from, call it middle of 2020 until 22, we had put together a real game plan to bolster expansion with larger tax credit projects and conventional projects. We had a very good pipeline of projects delivering and of uh, sites ready for financing. And then in the fourth quarter of 22, it's like someone flipped a switch. All of the rate hikes that had been enacted in like, I don't know, four or five month period that virtually doubled interest rates, uh, it just turned everything off. It was not like a dimmer switch. It was like a light switch. And thankfully, we were in a good position to react just because of timing and where we were with uh, the development uh, cycles of our projects. But we, a lot of us were ready for a gradual raise in interest rates, a moderate raise, but uh, that really caught us off guard. We could react to construction inflation, labor inflation, uh, other operating uh, expense increases, but, but that was very difficult. Was that issue more pronounced in the affordable world or in the market rate world? I know a lot of the the market rate equity dried up pretty quickly. As you said, it wasn't on a dimmer switch. But given the length of time between, you know, when you identify an affordable site and when maybe you have that bond allocation or 9% award, did the market shift in interest rates have a more pronounced impact in market rate or in the affordable space for Gateway? Well, it certainly had a pronounced effect on both sides. On the market rate, it was drastic. As I mentioned, we had a, a nice pipeline of, of projects that had been financed, were under construction, and we felt very good about those. Those projects are delivering now, and we like how those projects are unfolding. We immediately just dropped any future development uh, sites because you know, basically our equity was telling us, if you can't hit these kinds of returns for us to adjust to new return profiles, it doesn't work. And so we said, well, we need to recognize where our opportunity costs are and focus on affordable. And so what happened there is there was still a, a very meaningful impact in debt availability. We had to uh, react to investors having a much higher return threshold, offering less in proceeds for tax credits. And then we simply found that particularly with a lot of middle-sized growing metros that worked well when rates were not as elevated as they are, a lot of really attractive middle-sized metros just were not feasible for affordable development. A lot of states simply had, had to um, pull uh, their development programs, affordable housing development programs. And Josh, to Steve's earlier point, we saw the same thing on the historic side. I might front end your Q4 story. Uh, <laughs> we kind of struggled in the last half of 23, given where the Fed was headed with rates. So good quality projects, couldn't find financing. And, and I mean, you loved it firsthand. So 
What are you dealing with now relative to any projects that are under construction or construction's complete and you're in lease up? So you got them financed, you got them put together, you're either under construction or you're trying to get projects leased up. What are the challenges there for you? I would say the the first would be making sure that our construction scheduling is on on time. Prior to this massive quick spike in rates, when your construction debt is in the 3% range and you're running two, three, four months behind on or more on construction scheduling because of lack of labor or, or materials or whatever, a lot of pro formas could uh, support that. A lot of deals could support that. That margin for error is not there today. It makes the attention on construction scheduling that much more acute. We feel good about the way our team and, and our, our construction partners have, have handled that. What we're doing is continuing to watch uh, our projects to make sure they, they maintain schedule. We are feeling the impacts of, of labor as we onboard our associates. And then insurance is certainly a massive change that we're all absorbing too. So to that that point, Josh, and you know, you, you and I attend enough uh, affordable conferences that insurance seems to uh, come up in nearly every panel at those conferences these days. Is that impacting during construction lease up in the form of challenges to converting to the expected permanent financing? Because now all of a sudden your operating expense budget that was maybe carrying 500 bucks a unit for insurance now needs to carry a thousand bucks a unit for insurance. Or are you seeing that as more of a pronounced impact on deals maybe you developed 8, 10, 12 years ago that had been operating you know, one way for a long time, kind of clipping along, and now all of a sudden have had this kind of exogenous shock in the insurance market to you know, how they had operated for the previous 5, 10 years? We're certainly seeing it on, our, on, on hits to our existing portfolio and how we operate those. Uh, but the timing as underwriters want to make sure they reserve for you know, any additional costs with insurance and, and, and taxes for that matter as well, property taxes. What else are you seeing impact kind of the, the legacy portfolio? You know, we've talked a little bit on the challenges of new developments, both in, you know, getting them financed and in getting them built on time to avoid exacerbating the, the ramifications of the interest rate increases in labor and material cost. What else are you seeing with this shift in the market that is impacting the, the legacy portfolio? Is it you know, on opportunities for refinancing or disposition, or is it more on the, the day-to-day operations? It's day-to-day and it's on, on the ability to refi or, or stabilize financing, convert. And as you guys probably see, it's, it is very market-dependent, state-dependent, you know, even sub-market-dependent. And so we all read a lot of industry uh, news reports and data, you know, LinkedIn, RealPage, Yardy, you know, just key industry uh, data providers and you know you see a lot about about uh, oversupply, concessions, rental rates backing up, and we see some of that, but it's not across the board at all. We we are in a lot of, of markets right now that still have waiting lists, particularly on the affordable side. I think it's we're really trying to to understand where the market's settling out, but we're not seeing as grave a pullback in rental rates as some are reporting. All right. We're not going to ask you, Josh, about your prediction for the 24 presidential election, but I do want to ask you trends in in pricing, construction costs, labor, interest rates. Where do you see things going duration of 24? For us, uh, we, we don't see construction labor. Uh, we don't see that trailing off. 
We don't see construction pricing overall uh, moving much. And every time we've thought that we were at a top, certain uh, cost components will drop like lumber and then others increase, say, appliances. So we kind of expect that construction pricing uh, will be what it is, uh, be fairly flat between now and then. Interest rates, gosh, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 25 or 50 basis points up or down. That's the, I'm probably the last person that needs to answer that question for you. And our, our concern is we felt like there was a little, maybe a little bit of confirmation bias, a little bit of uh, expectation that we'd see sharp drops in rates over the course of this year. And to us, that's not necessarily a good sign because if we're seeing steep drops in rates, then that may, that may be a reaction to something that's not good uh, on a macro level. I'll leave the presidential prognostication. <laughs> I'll flip that back on you guys. What you- yeah, I'll leave that to others. You know, we'll, we'll ask you at the end how many wins the tide will have in 24. But, you know, we've talked a bit about the problems that Gateway and the rest of the the market has faced, both in conventional multifamily assets and in affordable projects. You know, I think maybe we can shift here and talk a little bit about the solutions and opportunities that we're seeing in this market. Uh, I know there are a number of, you know, legislative efforts and policy initiatives, both at the local level and the federal level. You know, one of which we sit here on January 24th, uh, we know that a couple of key components of uh, what had been called the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act have made it through the House Ways and Means Committee. So that's the the restoration of the 12.5% annual, you know, 9% allocations that we lost a few years ago and a modification to the, the 50% test. So would be curious for your thoughts on those two components in particular and, you know, if or how you'd expect that to impact the market? And then what else Gateway is watching at the the federal level or any policy initiatives that Gateway is particularly interested in? Absolutely. Some of what I'll say, uh, Steve, Rick, you guys already know, and you guys, I feel like, stay very close to um, the pulse of of what's happening in Washington and state houses uh, where affordable housing uh, issues are are really uh, vibrant conversations. We follow those issues through our trade associations and our friends like you guys. We feel like we are more connected to what goes on in, in, at the local level, at the county and, and, and city levels and, and the various markets uh, we operate. To your point, while we've talked about a lot of challenges and headwinds that, that we faced in our industry over the last 15 months, this is one of the encouraging things in our industry. This is something that adds to the gratification of what we do as affordable housing developers. And make no mistake, we're capitalists. We're, we're for-profit business people, but we get a ton of gratification out of seeing an affordable housing community come to life and, and to see the reactions of our residents and the, and the work of our associates on the ground. And, you know, I've been in this industry for about 20 years, so there are, there are a lot of folks uh, around who've been around uh, affordable housing for a lot longer than that, but a lot has happened in in 20 years. That's a long period of time in an industry that's been around for 40 years. And earlier in my career, when you approached uh, local officials, county commissioners, mayors, city councilmen, people like that, and you started talking about an affordable housing community that you wanted to propose, generally you were immediately met with skepticism or cynicism and that was not a very attractive idea uh it was how quickly can i get you out of my office and we've seen that that mentality change over the last particularly 10 years and if you get two minutes to tell someone who's a cynic about your industry you may not get to the end of two minutes but if you can get to the end of five minutes 
It's such a compelling idea. And it's, it's such a uh, universally needed element in our society and in our commerce. And, and look, we're in the South, so uh, you know, that's important context. But whether we're in a, a red, blue, or purple kind of area, when you start talking about this being one of the most bipartisan programs and one of the most bipartisan initiatives in the country, the fact that this is a product of the, the Reagan Tax Act, which was a very bipartisan act you know, almost 40 years ago, uh, the way this follows workforce development and uh, the way this creates, you know, workforce housing where it doesn't otherwise exist and the, and the private market can't deliver it. We get a ton of folks. I mean, it's it's a very fun, uh, easy uh, pitch to make, again, if you can get past the first two minutes. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Josh, the, the programs worked and, and served a variety of different constituencies. Being a historic rehab guy, None of our stuff on the historic side is ground up. It's obviously rehab of, of an existing facility. So I'm curious, I've often wondered, when you're looking at a piece of land, what are the factors that go into your decision to develop something as affordable, workforce housing related, or, or market rate? Are, are there particular drivers there? You know, that's, that's a great question. It's hard for one person to uh, make that decision. And if you have four or five or six making, you know, weighing in, which is how we're structured, we're able to 99% of the time reach a consensus because you do have to make a lot of judgment calls on unit count density. Should this be a, you know, a larger a bond, higher leverage type community or not? With financing being really tight with conventional uh, projects right now, we're leaning more towards uh, 4% and 9% tax credit projects. And then with debt costs being what they are, we're leaning even more towards 9%. So our goal has been to focus primarily on 9% over the last 15 months as we've reacted to this new normal, keep our leverage down. Uh, we want to keep a lot of dry powder right now. While there are challenges we see when very few people are finding ways to do deals, we see that as an opportunity. And we've just got to figure out how to source more capital and more leads. And, and we feel like we're able to do that. If you look hard enough, there's a lot of capital out there, but uh, we have to be resourceful. Josh, you know, I think I'll, I'll give you the last word here and let you touch on, on anything else you'd like to discuss. But I won't speak for Rick, but I, I can't say when we scheduled this, you know, hey, let's talk about the state of the LIHTC market to hear really such a hopeful reaction out of somebody. So it's great to hear that in the face of, of the challenges and the headwinds that groups like yours are saying, we still see opportunity in this market and these programs are too important to abandon and to you know shift the way that we do business. So you know, I don't know if there's anything else you wanna leave folks with in terms of you know what you're looking at for the next 15 months, what would have to change to maybe get Gateway to tiptoe back into conventional market rate projects or to shift back more towards 4% or really anything else you'd want to leave us with other than uh, maybe it's not as, as dark and dreary as we thought it was out there. You know, we've got to focus on, on how we move forward and we've got to focus on, on where there's opportunity, Steve. So where we can continue to find uh, well-located sites that have strong uh, job growth, diverse, strong job growth, solid school systems, that's just like good fundamental real estate. And we cannot control uh, what state programs do. We can just simply try to be as tied into where they're going and be in a position to move. And one of the things that we are noticing, we're hearing from various uh, larger investment groups, they're not able to put a lot of capital to work right now. 
they haven't been. You know, they keep waiting for for opportunities that that don't exist. And so we're seeing some of that capital loosen up because it's got to get put to work. And then from a labor standpoint, as construction projects roll off and, and new construction projects are not replacing those at the same level that we saw over the last, say, five years, we've just got to figure out where to source those opportunities. We think that capital will have to loosen up. It has to over the course of this year. We just have to understand what the, what the desires of that capital are. That's great. Rick, anything else from you before I book a flight to Birmingham to make sure Josh doesn't start a podcast and put us out of a job? I think that's probably a fait accompli, Steve. <laughs> I think your job security is just great after this. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you joining us today and uh, interested in hearing your insights. So thank you. Hey, you guys, thanks for having me on. This has been a treat. Uh, I know you could ask plenty of other uh, folks to join you. You know, if you want to make the next one about politics or uh, is it Penn State or Iowa or Iowa State's going to land next year? In the Is it going to be the <laughs> ACC that they end up in or the Pac-12? You tell me. I think that's about as likely as Penn State ended up in the AFC East. So, you know, we'll see what happens okay. here. But thank you very much for uh, coming on, Josh. And we look forward to having you on again to uh, see how well your predictions turn out. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Monarch Perspectives. We hope you will follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Monarch Private Capital, please visit monarchprivate.com.